This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Hey, I would love it actually if we could stand again, because I would love to begin by reading some scripture together out loud. It's 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. Would you read it with me? Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. Would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. As we've journeyed into this current series, together in this, we have asked ourselves and begun to answer in the last two weeks, we are together in what exactly? Stan has clearly articulated our hermeneutical lens, which is the lens of progressive Christianity. We're beginning to understand how that lens helps us make sense of our world how it helps us approach life and our view of God, our view of scripture, our view of humanity. James Whitehead says this, he says, faith is the enduring ability to imagine life in a certain way. So when we use our progressive lens, then we use it to have a holy imagination for a just and generous Christianity. And then in turn, we are called to start living this actually out. Today and next week, we are asking, who are we together in this with? What are our mutual responsibilities to each other? To begin, we have to ask ourselves, who is the other that we are supposed to be loving? And what, as a Christian, is our posture towards them? Thus, what is our responsibility towards them? Next week, we're going to strictly focus on what it means to be together as a church and our shared mutual responsibilities with our immediate togetherness. But this week, we wanted to focus on what it means to be together in the broader sense, together in this world, together as the human family, together as brothers and sisters who are all inherently worthy because we all bear the image of our God, all of us. The Apostle Paul says to this uh, polytheistic philosophers in Athens, it's in Acts 17. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. As I was going through your city and looking at the things you worship, I found an altar with the words to an unknown God. You worship this God, but you don't really know him. So I wanna tell you about him. This God made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't need help from anyone. He gives life and breath and everything else to all people. From one person, God made all nations who live on earth and he decided when and where every nation would be. God has done all of this so that we will look for him and reach out to him and find him. He isn't far from any of us and he gives us the power to live and to move and to be who we are. We are his children, just as some of your poets have said. It's not just me that is beloved, and it's not just you that is beloved, but when we begin to tease this idea out, we realize that this includes the other, and all of a sudden our us grows exponentially. We know that there are lots of degrees of relatedness within our idea of family or of friends, then there's neighbor, there's stranger, and then finally there's enemy. 
And then we see Jesus turning our world upside down, or some would say right side up, when he says things like, this is my mother and these are my brothers, when he wasn't actually talking about his blood relatives. He says things like, you've heard it said, love your enemy and hate, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. And then he goes on, obviously, to become a friend to all sinners. See, when we finally grasp this view of the world as Jesus did, I think not only our outlook on the other changes, but our world begins to change because we realize that there are those of us who will decide to live a life of compassion. And that means living a life not just with the other, but also for the other. A famous quote from Dorothy Day says, I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. As Christians, we have to be ready for the God that we worship and the Christ that we follow to lead us into the presence of the other, to lead us into the presence of those whom we disagree with. Christ will then lead us in relationships that are in need of reconciliation, both, both personally as individuals, sometimes as a nation, and then finally, sometimes even as our religion. With this lens, and it's not just a progressive lens, it's the lens of Christianity, we begin to realize that this world is not filled with us versus them. And we also begin to realize that our God is not ours in the possessive sense. We do not own God. We see more so that God is love and that God is big, that God is the ground of all being, that God loves people, and thus where people are, God is. Our prayer then becomes, give us the awareness of who you are, God, and who we, the collective we, are. The Jewish roots of our faith teach us that one can't know God without knowing humanity, and one can't know humanity without knowing God. To be truly together, in union with, we need to know one another. Our common origin as humans born in the image of God, this then precedes and therefore supersedes all of our other differing identities. They are in fact us. To be in this world means to belong to one another. Part of the symptoms of our unhealth and separation from each other at times show up in the fact that so many people and so many people groups feel alone or they feel like outcast of our society. And as followers of Christ, we need to be the healers. We need to be the reconcilers. We though, so often due to our fears of the unknown, we place walls in our head and in our hearts. And these walls then act as barriers against people and against us and other religions, against countries sometimes, sometimes barriers between races. And I wonder instead if we could not have walls, but instead have windows. So then we can see, truly see one another or if instead we could build bridges that lead to and from other people and places, but with that still we don't lose our own sense of foundation and our own sense of home. In our separation from each other, we have divided the world by our preferences, and sometimes far worse, we've divided the world by our prejudices. We tend as humans to generalize. I do it, you do it. We generalize about genders, about cultures, about religions, about society. We end up taking something very specific and then applying it more broadly. It's like saying that all dogs chase squirrels, when in fact I have two dogs and one of my dogs could care less about squirrels. 
It's like saying, if all the girls that you know love dolls, then, then all girls love dolls. We take one or a few facts and then we make a broader, more universal statement. Generalizations, though, can become more like stereotypes in which they become sometimes wrong and very, very harmful. Usually it's best to stick with specifics and avoid generalizations. It's best to stay particular, which is exactly what Jesus did all the time. I believe we have a sacred bond with all of creation and with all of humanity. Yet sometimes we use our imagination to actually try and manage God. We try our hardest to confine God into this us versus them mentality. And Anne Lamott quote, which some of you may be familiar with, says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. We as Christians have in the past declared boldly, our God is greater, our God is better, our God is higher. And that is basically playground talk for my God will beat up your God, okay? And then we try, try to imagine Jesus actually posturing himself in any of those ways. You begin to realize how foolish we've been. That the God that we've imagined in actions or in words or in songs is entirely opposite of the God that we were shown in Jesus. Jesus doesn't live by the sword, no. Jesus lived with a towel to wash feet and to serve people. Jesus welcomed any and all to a table to share in his life. Jesus is who we not only believe in, but who we must follow. Many say that the sole purpose of religions is to be a servant of the world. Others say that religion is best judged by the benefits to its non-members. Religion is best served by its benefits to its non-members. So I ask us, what are our benefits to the world around us? Who are we serving and how are we loving? I think we desperately need as Christians to get over our need to be right and separate and thus for the other to be wrong and begin to show the world how we love them that we are for each other, that we are in this together. I believe that three things, three actions can help us. The first of which is empathy, being able to say to someone, I've been there too, I see you and I've been there too. The second thing that we could use is cooperation, the ability to actually show up, join hands with someone and do something. And then finally, forgiveness, apologizing for our many mistakes and our mistreatment of each other. I think those things are agents of transformation which our world so desperately needs. See, we are together in this. So I think we have to ask some questions to ourselves today. Who am I related to? And then also, what is my responsibility? Scripture gives us many commands on how to treat the other, the stranger or the neighbor. Jesus tells us this story of a man who is asking this very question, who is my neighbor? And it's found in Luke 10. A similar question um, is asked in Genesis by Cain when he says, am I my brother's keeper? And so I wanna look at Luke 10 together. It's gonna be up on the screens. This is the often titled the parable of the good Samaritan or loving your neighbor. And I want you to read along with me and I'll give some commentary on it. And I know we know this story. Most of us grew up with this story. We're very familiar with it. So don't shut down. I want you to keep your ears open and our hearts open and let's see if the spirit can move us, move us into some new truth today. 
Verse 25, a legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Now, this legal expert, this is a Pharisee and someone who knew the law very well and wanted to follow the law. He says, teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Now, I want you to remember again that eternal life did not only mean the afterlife as so many of us think about and know that word. It was another way of asking about the critical component of Jesus's ministry, the kingdom of God that is both present and on its way. It's the here and now and now and then that we often talk about here. Pastor Josh Graves, who's the pastor at Otter Creek down the street and has become a very good friend of mine, his commentary on this says, essentially this man is asking Jesus something along these lines. I want to be a part of the world on its way. I wanna be a part of God's future in the present. What does that look like, Jesus? Verse 26, Jesus replied, what is written in the law and how do you interpret it? And that's such a great question for us right now in light of all that we're studying. It's not just how scripture reads, but it is how do we interpret it? Verse 27, he responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So the answer to what do I have to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love your neighbor. The answer was in the doing. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice right there, Jesus does not say you will have eternal life. He uses a synonym, synonym of that. Eternal life then is then synonymous with living right here and now. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. And so he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Again, stop right now. He's asking with every question of who is my neighbor is also the question of who do I have to love? It then implies who is not my neighbor? Who do I not have to worry about? What is the bare minimum of what I have to do here? Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up and left him near death. Now it was just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road when he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two full days worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him. And when I return, I will pay you back for any additional cost. Now Jesus says, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? The legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy towards him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, now when I was told this story, the Samaritan was the neighbor. I was told, be like the Samaritan, be the unlikely one to show up. But that answer never answered my question of, well, show up for who? To whom am I responsible? To whom do I show mercy? Who should I be moved by? Who do I love as dearly as I love myself? See, this man needed an answer for who's in and who is out. He was asking, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus said, you are the neighbor. You are the neighbor to everyone. You are the beloved and they are the beloved. So be a neighbor, show mercy, demonstrate love, do justice for all. 
So when we see ourselves asking, who is my neighbor? I think we are actually trying to find a little loophole in this Christian life. We're seeking to do the least we have to do in order to make it as true followers of Christ. The better question, which Jesus always asks, better question than gives us answers. The better question from Jesus is, who do you think the needy man thought was his neighbor? If we were first to focus on the Levite and the priest, they had to have asked themselves at some point, does this man meet my requirements of who do I have to stop and help? And they answered no. Was this the right answer? We often ask ourselves, is this person or this situation my responsibility? Instead of finding the bare minimum of what we have to do, who do we have to help, we should be asking, who would I take help from in my time of need? Jesus is saying again, go be a neighbor to everyone, including your enemy. See, the Samaritan did the work of eternal life. To fully understand this story and its implications, we have to ask ourselves, how would Jesus tell this story today? What hated community just like Samaria was in Jesus' time, it was a hated community. What hated community would Jesus use today to show us something this vital? See, Jesus points out a contrast between the behavior of the religious elite, the priest and the Levites, with the person from another religion, the Samaritan, a religion that was considered wrong, a religion that was considered off base. Jesus offers that the doctrine of this kingdom should then yield a religious ethic. Our belief should make way into our doing. In this story, you can either have the religion without the ethic or you can have the ethic then without the religion. And if we can only have one of those, we are to go for the latter. Jesus teaches us that the life to live not by simply loving the Samaritan, but by using a Samaritan to show us how to love. Jesus teaches us that we are together in this. And together with who? The answer is everyone. Why does Jesus choose this man's enemy to use as an example? See, I believe Jesus is trying to divide the walls that we build. We build these ideological walls. We separate ourselves from others by how we believe. And Jesus is saying the thing that should join us should be the way that we live. There would be an easier way to tell this story, to be able to say there's a guy in a ditch who needs help and you should then show up and help him. But instead to tell the story, Jesus used the Pharisee's enemy. He used the Samaritans who were the closest religion to theirs at the time. They were their half-siblings. They were an aberration of the, Jewish, of the Jews. So he used the stories to say, how do I live eternal life in this day? And Jesus is essentially also doing in this story inter-religious dialogue right here. So we may find it easier to give to our enemy than to be able to receive from them. We like it when the story sets us up to be the moral example, not our enemy. Jesus is not asking us though, he's not asking this man to give up his religion. He did not say to this man, go and be a Samaritan. He said, go be a neighbor the way the Samaritan was. In the human family, we are united by love and by deed more than we are united by our beliefs. Why do you think, excuse me, who do you think was the neighbor in the story? Who was the one who was actually doing the stuff of eternal life? Was it the man who was in the right religion 
or the man who did the right thing? Who actually believed right in the story? The one with the right religion or the one with the right life? That is the question. Again, Pastor Josh Graves, who wrote a wonderful new book that you can buy. It's on reconciliation between Muslims and American Christians. He says in the book that Luke 10, this story is a parable. It becomes the rallying cry, which echoes the prophet's charge to God's people in Micah 6:8 to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, period, period. So who are we together in this with? I think the first time that I noticed a common sense of unity or feeling like um, we are truly together in this and the sense of unity that was bigger than just my family or my community or my friends or my church was after the flood in Nashville in 2010. If you'll remember a saying spread across social media, it said, we are Nashville. You can make it a part of your profile pic on Facebook. You could add it to your Twitter page. And it went viral for Nashville and for the country. Nashville wanted to say that we are here for each other, that we are together in this right now. So many in our community needed us. They needed so much. And so, so many others in the community said in response, if you are hurting and you are in need, then we are in need. We are Nashville. Similar trends have followed suit since since then. When 12 people were killed by extremists outside of a newspaper office in France, many immediately in the world responded by putting up on social media, je suis Charlie, which meant I am Charlie. They were trying to say that I have solidarity with these victims. The same idea happens when hashtags, which are those pound sign for any of you non-social media people, (laughs) when these hashtags come up. So the the one that said, we are Nashville, the one that says, je suis Charlie. Another one that's up still today is Black Lives Matter. They are saying the problem in our culture isn't just for black people to talk about and worry about, it's for all of us to worry about and be concerned about. Black Lives Matter. The same response happened again when a militant group kidnapped 276 girls in Africa. The hashtag went up, bring back our girls. It went viral. It was not bring back their girls. It was bring back our girls. It was us. Same thing happened uh, even more recently with the massacre in Kenya. You'll still, you'll still see things on Facebook today that says, I am Kenya. Same thing yesterday with the earthquake in Nepal where over 1,500 people have died. Some in the world want to stand together. We want to show our solidarity. So we put up, we are Nepal. We are longing. The world is longing for us to stand together. Our world is longing for justice and for healing and for reconciliation. Our world is longing for love. And we as Christians say that we have love to give. So are we showing that truly love doesn't just say, but love actually does. Love actually does. Rabbi Brad Hirschfield says, we are called to notice the person in front of us before the ideology inside of us. We are called to notice the person in front of us before the ideology inside of us. And then we are called to make choices to privilege that person. See, I believe when we become followers of Christ and we share a lens then that views all humans as the beloved of God, then we have to sacrifice some things. There are some things that we are called to give up. We give up our privilege of not caring. We give up our privilege. We sacrifice our ability to walk away or to ignore what we see. We give up our identity of being able to say, well, someone else can worry about that. No, 
we belong to each other. We have to help with that. We have to stand for them. And we realize as Christians that we don't have true peace until all have true peace because they are us and we are in this together. A little over eight years ago before I had my son Hutch, I was in the best shape of my life as normal pre-kids. I took boxing and I loved it. I loved the excitement in the ring. I loved hitting the pads. I loved learning how to react quickly and effectively to take someone out. I loved the fight, okay? So I found my old boxing gloves last year when we were moving and I decided since I now have this back injury and I can't do it, that it was time to throw them out. But as I stared at these boxing gloves, I realized that I am still often drawn into a fight. I am an eight on the Enneagram. Any eights in here that you know of? I know there's one. Rob Hawkins is hiding. Steven, yeah, you're Steve. See, don't be shy. Eights aren't supposed to be shy, people. (laughs) So I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Eights are known as the challenger. Okay, each number on the Enneagram, there are nine of them, each number has its strengths and its weaknesses. But with our number, an eight, I have been known to be that person that Stan mentions that asks, is this a private fight or can I please join in? Okay? I really can't help it. Ben just, he shakes his head at me all the time. So I have loved the fight in the arena of every day, of in person or of being online. And we all know that social media has been a training ground for quick and reactive comebacks to get the most bang for our 140 characters. I see it happen every day, and I've been just as guilty as the next person. And as I stared at those boxing gloves and realized that I needed to let them go, I knew that fighting was something I need to let go of as well. I need to outgrow it as well. I don't wanna fight anymore. It is not accomplishing anything. Sure, it feels good in the moment to come back, uh, to fight back, to react, to one-up each other online with a scripture here or a doctrine or a critique there, but that isn't who we are and that isn't who we are called to be, friends. This hopeful, peacemaking nature that is inside of us finally needs to mature and bring itself out. Our lives can be a better defense than our words. Your life can be a better defense than your words. There are new ways that you and I can train for this approach to life, ways that we can willingly not be so defensive, ways that we can choose to not take things so personally. We can constantly try to gain perspective, see, because when something is in perspective, it's considered as a part of a more complete situation. You begin to have an accurate and fair understanding of it. There is nothing life-giving in the fight, nothing. There is hurt, there is shutting down, There is knocking out an opponent. There's nothing life-giving. And I believe that we as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we are to be in the life business. The resurrection and reconciliation movement, the restoration of all things is the very heartbeat of the kingdom that we pledge our allegiance to, not the kingdoms and systems of this world. The opposite of life is death. The opposite of reconciliation is to tear down or break apart. The opposite of restoration is to damage or destroy. And I look and I read and I hear so many things out of my own mouth and heart that follow those latter ideas. We need to ask ourselves, how am I bringing about life? 
How am I savoring and restoring life in each and every situation? We need to be able to back up from our attachment to Facebook and Twitter and blogs and internet and even the news, and we need to be involved in real life. And at the very least, we need to understand that behind those 140 characters is real life and real people. I've always loved the quote by Madeline LaEngle. It says, I have a point of view, you have a point of view, God has view. God has view. Now hear me, your opinion can still be of worth and value while humbly realizing it is just yours and it is just one. So can we hold it? Yes. Can we speak it? Yes. Can we share it? Yes. But we must offer it with humility and with grace. Now, don't hear me saying that I am or that you should throw in the towel. No, no, no. That would be a declaration of surrender and giving in. No, we are not giving up. As followers of Christ, we are just choosing to lay the gloves down and step out of the ring, but we will run this race and we will finish this fight, but it will be the good fight, as Paul states in his second letter to Timothy. And the good fight is not with people. The good fight is not against denominations. It's not about liberals against conservatives, against fundamentalists. It's not against other religions. It's not against Muslims or Hindus. The good fight is not against people who have a different color than you do. It's not against the rich or the poor. The good fight is fought against the ways of this world that stand against what the kingdom of God stands for. The good fight is against the systems of evil that oppress, that tear down, that steal worth that lock us in cages of uh, false certainty or pride. The fight though, if fought well, it ends with restoration. It will make all things new. It does not slam doors. It does not lock people in or lock people out. It is motivated by love and by compassion. It drops keys. It liberates people as the poet Hafiz so beautifully wrote, This is the fight that we are to believe in. So we need to back away from that closed fighting ring where winner takes all, and we need to move out into the open pasture where freedom reigns and where there is space at a table for all. For we are in this very beautiful world together. We can and should though come back to the ring, but not to engage in that fight. We need to know though, and be able to share with those in need who are in that ring, we need to be able to share with them what liberation looks like and then invite them back to the table. Our action should not be one of lashing out, but of covering, of supporting, of protecting, of bearing one another's burdens. And then we will drop as many keys as we can with our words, with our actions, and with our lives. Love needs to be our training ground. See, as an eight, I like to be in control of things. It's in my nature. And in some ways, it's because I'm good at being in control of some situations. In my health as an eight, I can lead well. But in my unhealth as an eight, if I can't lead well in a situation, I still fight because I don't want someone else to control me in it. So sometimes as religions and we as Christians take on these unhealthy eight tendencies, we long to be in control of other people's narratives. We long to be in control of their convictions. And we do so not because we actually know what's best for them, but because we know what is best for us. And we try to impose that on them sometimes before we even know people. This has to change. 
As Christians, we've shouted, they will know us by our love, and yet we bring our rule book and our whiteboard and we start marking off what people do wrong. No, no, no. We don't need a board and a rule book. We need a towel to be able to wash some dirty and some tired feet. We need the table where we are welcoming whomever comes into our midst and we turn them into our guest. We need to let go of our need for enemies. And in doing so, we realize that when we come face to face with the enemy, that the enemy is our brother or our sister or our mother or our father. And then they will know us by our love. See, sometimes we long for supremacy as Americans and as Christians. And I think what we actually need to do is give ourselves over as a vital and healthy part of the whole. I would love it if if our musicians could come back up. We're gonna sing a little and come to the Lord's table in a minute. But I want us to take notice that God listens more than God talks. It's true in your life. God listens more than God talks. We should follow suit. We should take notice of the smallness of Jesus, the humility of Christ, and how that is a huge part of the image that we know God by. Christianity has focused much on our distinctiveness as a religion. But what is incredible about Jesus, what actually sets Jesus apart was his radical inclusive nature. Do you hear that? We wanna focus on our distinctives, but what sets Jesus apart was his radical inclusiveness, his unwillingness to be separate from the other. We should follow suit. Let's look at this scripture, Ephesians 2, 14 through 22. Christ, Christ himself is our peace. He made both Jewish people and those who are not Jews one people. They were separated as if there were a wall between them, but Christ broke down that wall of hate by giving his own body. The Jewish law had many commands and rules, but Christ ended that law. His purpose was to make the two groups of people become one new people in him and in this way make peace. It was also Christ's purpose to end the hatred between the two groups, to make them into one body and to bring them back to God. Christ did all of this with his death on the cross. Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near to God. Look at that again. Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away from God and to those who were near to God. Yes, it is through Christ. We all have the right to come to the Father in one spirit. Now you who are not Jewish are not foreigners or strangers any longer, but are citizens together with God's holy people. You belong to God's family. You are like a building that was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the most important stone in that building. And the whole building is joined together in Christ. He makes it grow and become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Christ, you too are being built together with the Jews into a place where God lives through the Spirit. Samir Salmanovic um, wrote this beautiful book called It's Really All About God, and it is one of my favorite books. And in it, he says, I have come to think of God's perceived absence in the world as a sign of God's faith in us. Yes, God believes in us. He said, we too should have faith in humanity. We too should have faith in humanity. 
It is not about us and them. It is about you and me. It is friends and it is family on a journey together. This, I believe, is the good way, friends, and we need to walk in it. The poem goes, another world is not only possible, she's on her way. Many of us won't be here to greet her, but on a quiet day, if you listen carefully, you can hear her breathing. Friends, a new humanity is waiting to be born and it begins with you and it begins with me. We are together in this. James 3.9 says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with the tongue we curse people who have been made in God's likeness. This morning, may we choose to be the blessing and not the curse. Would you pray this prayer with me this morning? Let's say it out loud. May we be the blessing today and not the curse. May we encourage one another towards an abundant life. May we seek peace and reconciliation in our own hearts and with the hearts of those around us. May we live humbly. May we see our enemy first as brother, as sister, as mother, or as father. May we give all people, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our communities, and our leaders, the benefit of the doubt. May we let love lead us. May we let generosity guide our actions. May we stand for what Christ stood for, or rather stand with those who Christ stands with all. May we get down off our fences and high posts and come down into the level ground, into the open space where all truly live. May we dwell in this fertile ground where our lives will eventually turn outward toward others. May we allow our focus to turn from me to them, to you, and finally to us. May we live united. May we seek shalom. May we be reminded of the image of God in all of our lives. May we seek communion with all. May we be the blessing and not the curse. Would you say amen?